Hello, and welcome to the December 27th, 2022 episode of The Musical Universe of Professor Hurst. This is Craig W. Hurst, Emeritus Professor of Music, podcasting from my music bunker, along with my faithful canine companion, Carmel the Wonder Dog, to share with you my latest musical interests and discoveries. I claim no special inside information about the latest or greatest music, nor do I know everything there is to know about music. What I am is a lover of music. I enjoy several genres of music, and I share with you what has currently caught my interest, old, new, outdated, and everything in between. Even old music is brand new if you've never heard it before. The universe of music is a vast one to enjoy. From my discussions, you might find something new to you and of interest to expand your own musical universe. I currently receive no compensation or motivation of any kind from any recording label, recording artist, or estate of any performer or composer dead and gone to discuss their music and or recordings. Now with that out of the way, Welcome to my musical universe. After 25 years in music, building an unimpeachable reputation as a truly independent artist and entrepreneur, Julian Taylor now owns his legacy. From the formative rock of staggered crossing to the genre fusion of the Julian Taylor Band, and now his revered work as a solo singer-songwriter, Julian owns the right to it all, and it couldn't have happened at a better time. It's rare in this era to see an artist build slowly and reach a new level of widespread acclaim two decades into their career. And so he's built things slowly and in a do-it-yourself fashion, withstanding highs and lows along the way, ultimately reaching the peak of his powers with his latest solo work. Fans and critics have noticed granting Julian the Solo Artist of the Year honor at the Canadian Folk Music Awards and nomination in the English songwriter category, plus two Juno Award nominations in 2021, as well as a Polaris Music Prize nomination. Growing up in Toronto on a combination of soul music, hip-hop, blues, and Americana, along with 90s alternative, Julian was still a teenager when he co-founded the alt-rock band Staggered Crossing in 1996. Within three years, the band signed a publishing deal with industry icon Frank Davies and a record deal with a major label, Warner Music Canada. Staggered Crossing's self-titled debut album was released in 2001. It established Julian and Staggered Crossing as rock artists with infectious pop sensibilities. After all, 
from his earliest demos in the late 1990s through Staggered Crossing and the Julian Taylor Band, acoustic songs were featured throughout. That brings us to the big breakout, 2020's The Ridge. Though written and recorded before the pandemic, it was the balm for the soul that so many needed that year. Through the most personal songwriting and soulful singing of his career, Julian found a whole new audience that fell in love with him. Really, it's rare for an artist to have a major critical and commercial breakthrough two decades into their professional career. But then again, it's also rare to make an album that resonates with listeners like The Ridge did. It earned Julian his first two Juno Award nominations, Indigenous Artist or Group of the Year and Contemporary Roots Album of the Year, along with a Canadian Folk Music Awards for Solo Artist and nomination for English Songwriter of the Year, five Native American Music Award nominations, plus a nomination for Canada's most prestigious music accolade, the Polaris Music Prize. I was making up for lost time, he said simply when talking to the CBC in 2021 after receiving the Juno Award nominations. With the Ridges live off the floor production style and stripped back instrumentation, Taylor's warm voice illuminated the autobiographical lyrics. Going deeper into the personal stories, Taylor revisited his childhood summers on his grandparents' farm in Maple Ridge, British Columbia, as well as themes of family, personal loss, and growth. Now on his latest album, Beyond the Reservoir, he explores the next chapter of his life. Beyond the Reservoir is an album that addresses identity, loss, sadness, hope, and redemption. The themes of resilience, courage, and strength are prevalent in every carefully chosen lyric. It contains a gentle spiritual thread that runs throughout the album, touching on each of the elements like fire, water, air, and earth as they relate to humanity. It is a coming-of-age story and a beautifully orchestrated successor to The Ridge. On Beyond the Reservoir, Taylor continues to mine his personal story and identity as a black man of Mohawk and West Indian roots in a white world and music scene. And yet, with music that knows the perfect balance between sparse and complex, along with the thoughtful directness of his words, which are sung in his distinctive, warm, and trustworthy voice. Taylor's songs resonate with nearly everyone who listens closely. The country and the city, rural and urban, their respective influences have been heard his whole career, beginning with the rock of Staggered Crossing, the genre fusion of the Julian Taylor Band, and now in the soul folk of The Ridge and Beyond. The Reservoir. With his characteristic warmth and charisma, which has enthralled audiences for years, we should all be grateful that Julian Taylor is back, 
His music is like a long hug for this time of reconnection. The ridge has eased the loneliness of the last two years, and now beyond the reservoir will help us reunite. Music that is deeply human has that special power. It is my pleasure to welcome to my musical universe, Julian Taylor. Hello, Julian. Hello, how are you, Craig? Well, I'm doing very well, and it's great to have you as a guest on uh, on my podcast today. I've been looking forward to having the opportunity to speak with you and learn more about you and your music. Um, well, thank you. I'm very it, honored. Well, that's great. I'm I'm happy you feel that way. It makes me feel good to 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 know that you're you're glad to be here as well. Um, the question that I ask every artist. Uh, because I'm always interested in everybody's origin story, is who or what turned on the light for you? What motivated you to play guitar, sing, and write songs? Wow. Um, there's so much that I could go back to and, and uh, share with you, but I would have to say at the very beginning, it would have been the, uh, the pop star Michael Jackson, because um, I was young. I was born in 1978. And Thriller came out, sorry, yeah, right after that. And it was everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, he could sing, he could dance, he could do all those things. Um, I, I, I only really actually appreciate the first two records, like uh, Off the Wall and Thriller. The others kind of lost me. But at that period of time, I was really into it. And uh, when it comes to other kinds of music, uh, Harry Belafonte was played in my house a lot um richie havens and um mm -hmm. things like redbone as well because my mom really liked that stuff and uh willie dunn and obviously because we lived in canada there was a huge yorkville scene in the 60s that also happened um where you would have the joni mitchells and the gordon lightfoots and neil young's and bruce coburn's of the world uh coming out uh rick james also came out of that area and my my mom and her sister loved motown as well so we listened to a lot of that and then mm -hmm. uh those are the things that really turned me on. I know for a fact when my mom gave me a Jim Crochet tape that um, that one really turned my crank. I really liked mm -hmm. his songwriting. Yeah, I'm with you there. I I remember. Uh, I still remember <laughs> the day Jim Croce died. Oh I wow! I can think back. I can think back, and I know exactly where I was, and what I was doing when I heard that he had died, and I loved his music as well. I mean, his, his songwriting, his lyrics, uh, just, uh, just a, a great combination of things. But yeah, I was a freshman in college and I was getting my hair cut in the barbershop in the student wow. union and the guy cutting my it? hair had the radio on. And I remember him saying, damn, did you just hear that? Jim Croce has been killed. So that's my Jim Croce story in terms of how I remember. Wow. It. But I, uh, Shame. you know, he was very young. Oh, you know, and, and he has, and he has a son who's also uh, a performer. I, HJ. Mm -hmm. I've also uh, been yeah. listening a bit to his music, but. Uh, Have you spoken to him? Mm, I haven't yet, but um, I'm, uh, you know, things are always kind of a process and, and take, take a while to, because I've got a lot of a lot of people in the queue, and I try to you know learn as much as I can about them before I 
yeah, you know, engage uh, someone in a uh, interview situation, you know, uh, because I feel like mm -hmm. I respect artists enough <laughs> to where uh, I should come into a situation knowing something about them, not just, uh, I not just a that, completely yeah. blank slate. I can't know everything, obviously, but but not a completely <laughs> blank slate. They, but, uh, they don't know everything either. Well, that's true. I mean, we're all there. But, you know, you you speak of some songwriters who I also listened to when I was young and 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 loved and and um, uh, so I can see how that would also inspire you. Although my Michael Jackson experience goes back further to uh, the Jackson five and then when he did some of his first singles. Um, mm -hmm. but, uh, yeah, he was a great, uh, great singer entertainer, but let's talk really about, was, yeah. uh, kind of real things up more to the, the present or the near, near past. What typically motivates you to write? Well, it's funny because, um, it takes me a little bit of time to really focus on each record. And once I finish a record, and it's out into the world. That's when I get motivated to write again because mm -hmm. I've left I've left some some of the stuff out of uh, I've shed some of my skin and and it's out there and and now it's it's a, it's a new phase. So it's funny. Um, while I was working on Beyond the Reservoir, I wasn't really writing anything. I was really focused on getting that out and getting that produced properly and and recorded properly. And now that it's been out for three weeks, I can see myself getting into that inspirational period of uh, the songwriting process where I'm I'm starting to go back and I'm I'm picking up my guitar and playing things that I haven't played before and, and recording those down and writing lyrics that I that just come to mind. So I would have to say that the actual process of creating is what inspires me mm -hmm. for the most part. Certainly, mm -hmm. you know, lived experience is the other, you know, that inspires me family, mm -hmm. lived experiences, things that have happened to me. Nature is another thing that really inspires me. Um, stories of other people and, and their, their, their hardships and, and their triumphs uh, inspire me. But literally, it's, it's such an interesting thing because I can't really concentrate on writing until the, finally the project that I've been working on is out and gone. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you feel like that, uh, you know, you, you're kind of one of these people that has a singular focus uh that uh, kind of keeps you uh maybe keeps your blinders on and then once once that uh, particular project is done and it kind of opens you up to other thoughts other ideas things that maybe have been smoldering in your subconscious mm -hmm. but uh but you're being busy and focused with other things it's kind of uh kind of kept the cap on so to speak and then once that project's oh, out sure. it you know, it pops, pops back open again. That's interesting. Um, you know, to, when I think about that, I, when you said that the act of creating is, is sometimes what's motivating to you. And I, I find that interesting simply because when I, uh, taught, uh, full-time at the university in the latter years of my career, you taught music. Oh yeah. I taught music, but, um, uh, in the latter part of my career, I also taught some non-music courses because I was interested just in the basic gist of what the course material was about. And one of the courses I taught was entitled Creative Thinking and Problem Solving. Now, in music, we do that all okay. the time. We do that all the time. 
you know, uh, every every musical situation is a is a re requires some sort of creative problem solving, you know. It's just like mm -hmm. when you write an antecedent phrase to a song, you've got to come up with a you know a, a good an antidote cons consequent phrase. Or if you write a chorus, you're going to want to have uh, verses that kind of support the meaning or whatever you're going to you know express in the chorus so creative problem solving was nothing new to me it's just putting it in a context okay. other than just only musical so what, what was the context you were putting it on well mine was just in general creative thinking and problem solving how do we get ourselves to think creatively creative creatively and i used to have a my students okay. do an exercise where I would have, oh, I don't know, a dozen or so different little objects. Like it might be a pencil, it might be a a, 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 a cigarette lighter, it might be a, you know a rubber band, any kind of numbers of just un you know unrelated objects. And I would put them in a box, and I would put hand the student, and I would say, all right, I want you to choose two objects. You can't look; you've just got to reach in and grab them. And I say, okay, now you've got your two objects, invent something new. Because that new inventions typically are just recombinations of things that already exist. Uh, you know, yeah, yeah. you know that. what you know what I'm saying? Because, you know, it's mm -hmm. like, it's like, all right, when you create a new lyric, you're not inventing any new words. Well, you might, you might have a new word that, that you put into something that, that hasn't, you know, been in existence or it's a combination of of uh other other words that are not in typical usage but mostly you're going to be using language that's familiar that you've been, yeah that's been used for hundreds and hundreds of years right but you put those words together in new and different ways to express something new mm -hmm. and anyway so this is what i was trying to get my students to do it to show them that i could to how they could be creative and also how to kind of get the juices flowing for their creative thinking. And, uh, right, right. uh, and, and this was in a course that I taught, we offered a degree for people who had some college, but had not finished college. So it was a degree completion degree. And uh, when we designed the degree, degree we asked, uh, employers, and uh, entrepreneurs in the state of Wisconsin, where I was teaching what they wanted from a college degree. And the number one thing they came back with was we want creative thinkers and problem solvers. You know, because that's what, that? yeah, because that's what a business needs. They didn't need any more bean counters. You know, they wanted people who could, who could creatively solve problems. So that's why that course was included. Mm -hmm. But uh when you uh, think back to the, the last uh, song that you were inspired to write, uh, what came first? Was it uh, a lyric or a melody or a rhythm or a set of chord changes or a particular mood? Are you talking about the last song that was completed or that I'm working no, on? No, just the last thing you were inspired to write. What comes? What came first? Um, this particular thing happened yesterday where um, melody and chords were coming first. I haven't really put any music to it. And what I'm going to have to do uh, is deconstruct the whole song. And, and I, I'd like to go back to the drawing board and write the lyrics first, or at least 
have an idea of what I'm writing about mm -hmm. uh, specifically. And then, uh, then I'll go back and I'll try to put them together. What I like about writing lyrics first is that the lyrics dictate the melody more mm -hmm. so often than the opposite way. So like in order to, to turn a phrase and you want to, you want to keep a lyric, you end up sort of accidentally meandering and following the words to find your melody. But if you've created the melody first, you're always trying to fit words into it. So I kind of toe the line on both ideas. I mean, certainly when writing a chorus, you want the lyrics. I, I've Most melodies I've written first for choruses. It's the mm. verses that I don't necessarily... Yeah, so most choruses are, are are chords and melody first and then i find something that fits within them mm -hmm. uh, but verses I I, I I i tend to you know sometimes i walk away like if i'm writing with somebody else however um like if i'm collaborating with someone usually mm -hmm. what's happening in that particular sense is that we've got the melody and we're trying to come up with the words for it Mm -hmm. But when I'm writing by myself, um, a lot of the time I just I, I, I just try to write something down early in the morning, like prose or a letter, um, a poem or something like that, and just and just use that and, and mm -hmm. see what I can come up with. Because it's also fun. And it's also fun to have lyricists send me stuff, too. Right. So they've done that in the past where I've grabbed somebody else's lyrics and come up with some com something completely different, like, I, I guess, in a, a Bernie and Alton sort of scenario. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, you know, I've, <clears throat> I've talked to a number of singer songwriters and everybody seems to have kind of different, different approaches. The one that uh, always tickles my innards the most, though, is a guy by the name of Nick Moss, who's a, a blues musician in uh, Chicago. And uh, I asked him mm -hmm. where he got a lot of his inspiration. He'd, he said, I get a lot of it from uh, the marquees in front of churches when I'm traveling in the South. Because one of his one of his albums one of his albums is entitled "The High Cost of Low Living," which he said he took right That's off amazing. of a, off of a church marquee, <laughs> and then he put the of course no, the music. Kidding. In it. Yeah, that's pretty funny, you know. Well, and, you know what? That makes sense. They've got some pretty funny ones out there. I've yeah. Seen. Well, or you can find humor yeah. in them, you know. And and uh, for sure, for sure. Uh, you know. And I have some. I've had some people say that. That, uh, you know, they'll find a particular uh, phrase that they find appealing or that has some kind of meaning and that they find that the, the words themselves have some sort of inherent melodic content and that uh, that, that will come mm. to them that way. And, uh, you know, but it's also interesting. It's like when you look at George and Ira Gershwin, great songwriters, Gershwin, great George songwriter. Gershwin would write the music before Ira would ever put the words to it. And he would put in uh, dummy lyrics. And, uh, and then Ger then Ira would put in the real lyrics to fit the, fit the melody. But uh, everybody's different. Everybody has a different way of doing things. Um, wow. Yeah. yeah. I, did, I didn't actually know that about uh, Gershwin. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, I actually, I, I learned that, I learned that only from a, uh, jazz singer who's excuse me now deceased uh susanna mccorkle who uh, uh one, of, one of her recordings she talked about uh she was talking about i got rhythm and she said mm. uh she was talking about this process that george and ira gershwin would go through and so she started she sang i got rhythm 
with the original dummy lyrics and then with the lyrics that uh of course we all know that uh ira later wrote to uh, fit the tune so uh there's wow. all kinds of interesting little combinations and of course i have no idea really how elton john and bernie Taupin worked together whether whether uh you know he i put... think that bernie just hands him the lyrics yeah i think that that's how it works there but um that, at least that's what i've heard where like bernie will write something like your your song which is beautiful mm -hmm. lyric by the way mm -hmm. yes it is and then elton just grabs onto that so yeah well, the other thing I've also found, too, is how many singer-songwriters were English lit majors in college. I find a lot Actually, of Actually, I did take English. I, I did take English literature um, in, in university. Yeah. So that was, that was what I that was that was I, my my gig. Yeah. yeah. Well, anyhow, I didn't finish, though. Oh, well, <laughs> we all have different paths. I ended up. I, yeah, I ended up uh, joining a rock and roll band and yeah, well, going you... on the road instead. So. There you go. Well, kind of uh, next question I have is kind of more of a philosophical one. Okay. Yeah, that where we talk about, uh, you know, the ancient Greeks claimed that the purpose of tragedy in drama was to serve as an emotional catharsis for those witnessing the drama. You could experience the emotional pain of what you were witnessing on stage without having to bear the actual pain of what was being viewed. When you think about your songs, is the aesthetic purpose of your songs to provide an emotional cleansing for your listeners? Or are you, as some other songwriters have done, simply serving as an observer of human relationships and making personal commentary? I would have to say, um, it's a good question, but mine would have to be it's a, a more of a healing process um, in my own lived experiences when I write songs. So I'm mostly commenting on uh, things that have really affected me and those around me um, because I have to see, I have to find some way to deal with the pain myself. Mm -hmm. And so I've decided, I've decided to write the pain down and try to let it loose that way um i i know that for some people they feel it too when i'm you know the work that i've put out more recently mm -hmm. than, than than not has really done that um and served as a purpose where uh for healing but also for for mostly conversation in a lot of ways you know mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to start a conversation and, and to try to keep that going um, so that we can sort of better understand our own humanity with each other, you know? Sure. No, I, I understand what you're saying. And I, and I, you know, the next thing I'd like to do in the interviews to talk specifically about some of the songs, uh, from your new album and how they spoke to me. And then have you comment on kind of how I view them and, and, uh, and, uh, mm -hmm. and have you, uh, kind of, uh, discuss them a little bit and, uh, the, the, there's two yeah, songs I, like I there's two songs i would like to start with only because okay. in listening to the album these two songs seemed very curiously relatable to each other now again this is just from my perspective so if i'm totally mm -hmm. off base or wrong i'm not going to be offended 
but the two yeah, songs yeah. are opening the sky, which seemed yeah. to me to bookend nicely with the opening song on the album, Moonlight. Now, Moonlight okay. comes across as a uh, quote unquote, what I learned in the school of hard knocks uh, with some love extended to you as well, kind of uh, mode. Uh, whereas opening the sky comes across as perhaps the last words of experienced advice of an older person mm -hmm. imparted to a child or grandchild or other younger person. So kind of with mm -hmm. that in mind, would you comment on these two, two songs and the perceived contrast that I'm finding in the, in the, in the lyrics? Yeah, sure. Um, you're right in a lot of ways. Um, that opening the sky was to book uh, book and moonlight. It's also the one mm. that I chose to close the record, uh, other than the uh, the bonus track. But in moonlight, I'm talking specifically about the hardship of trying to find one's way mm -hmm. and using um, a certain occurrence that happened to me where I was out with my aunt on my my birthday and she gave me this stone that we had collected on the beach when I was about four years old. And it just really turned the moment into a very, you know, cathartic sort of moment, but also a very thoughtful moment where I, what I hadn't realized as I got a little bit older in my teenage years was that people were always looking out for me. You know, my family was always looking out for me and, and had my back in so many more ways than I, than I was even aware of. Um, Moonlight also takes me to, you know, places where I was getting into a lot of trouble, um, you know, sit, hanging out in parks and, and, and doing no good and knowing that all along in the background, people were praying for me, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, and so the last song is like that is me doing that in return as, as, as things come full circle. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I, 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 I am speaking to uh, my daughter who's 10 uh, opening the sky as a direct conversation with her i see okay so i wasn't too far off the mark then what uh what you were after well you know speaking about those uh, about family and mm -hmm. uh, perhaps becoming more aware of uh of their real meaning and intent i would like to uh mention that the song your song wide awake really spoke directly mm. to me spoke directly to me oh, because good. I remember when I was 17, 18, you know, that time period of my life. And I thought my father was the stupidest man I knew. And then <laughs> as I got older, as I got older, I became yeah. uh, more awakened to really just how brilliant he was and how stupid I was for not seeing that when I was younger. Because life experiences do, oh, you know, life experiences do teach us that as we age, that our parents may have been a lot smarter than we gave them credit for. And, and then, of course, yes, we do, do. Yeah. and we do have our memories. Would you comment on the song Wide Awake, please? Oh, sure. I mean, Wide Awake was a tune that uh, you're exactly right. Um, it, it encompasses the fact that here, I am, and uh, as a result of the upbringing that my my family, you know, I, I'm so grateful for them. 
in terms of, of all that I put them through. So grateful to them for sticking it out with me. And I, uh, you know, some people, some people's families don't. And, um, I wanted to address the fact that uh, I'm of mixed heritage. I wanted to address the fact that I have caused people harm and caused my own uh, self-harm and uh, wanted to really open up and, and thank my family for, for being there for me and until I found a way back to being, you know, a cognitive of, of all the sacrifices and all the things that they've, they've done for, for me and my, my sibling my sister mm -hmm. you know and, and 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 it's just an amazing thing family uh and my family has been so good and so kind to me and, and that's all really that was about about how lucky i i feel like a person like me is and i know that i'm not the only person around like that I, we all mm -hmm. some of us can relate to that like you you know we're very lucky mm -hmm. to be able to, to 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 be able to talk like this and, and freely it's a it's a it's a privilege Sure. It's, you know, yeah. Well, I just think that, you know, I, what I felt was being expressed and, and why it spoke directly to me is just how narrow our focus can be when we're younger, less mature. I've seen less of the world, so to speak, mm -hmm. than, say, our parents or other family members have, and that we don't always fully understand their motivations or why they ask us to do things or not do things. And then as we become sure. older, uh, we kind of, uh, you know, kind of awaken to uh, having that aha moment as to as to why those things, uh, <laughs> you know, came about, uh, you know, uh, uh, but kind of related to something you were talking about uh, in terms of, you know, doing things that maybe, you know, you weren't uh, weren't supposed to. It, I, I kind of am getting that vibe from the song Murder 13. Uh, although mm. the language that you use comes across like a very picturesque recollection of time, uh, of a time from your past or someone's past, however, one that was not entirely pleasant. Uh, would you comment mm -hmm. on the song and tell us if you can, or if you wish to, what is the significance of the last line? My name is Alex. I was murder 13. It's a true story. Uh, okay. my, one of my best friends, uh, his name was Alex, and he was the 13th murder in, in the city of Toronto in 2005. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a true story. Wow. Um, it's an epitaph. Okay. And um, yeah, I, I don't know what else to say other than the... Um, Yeah. I mean, he, I knew him from when he was a kid. And so we mm -hmm. grew up together. And, uh, you know, similar paths, but not similar paths. And one of the things that he decided to do uh, eventually got him killed. Um, so I wasn't going to really talk too much about um, the murder itself, because that was something that I didn't want to do. Also, I was, you know, instructed by some friends that it was dangerous to do because the person who, um, nobody was ever convicted. Okay. Of the murder. So they also were worried about my safety in terms of what I was going to talk about. Mm -hmm. So I just talked about, uh, what it felt like to grow up with them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sure. 
Okay. The course is really about, you know, sometimes you just you're 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 tired and you want to go home. Yeah. Okay. Well, I I hear you. I understand. I understand where you're coming from. Uh, and uh, it's a it's it's a way to give tribute to your friend without being quite as direct, I suppose. Um, mm -hmm. Or revealing. And that's uh, nothing wrong I, I with that. I decided not to be. Yeah, I decided not to be too too revealing about it. You know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I was. It was a little bit too hard to 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 do. To be honest. Well, I I can you know there's uh, some feelings that are really hard to express in words or music, um, and uh, so that certainly is understandable. Well, another one of your songs that uh, I found interesting was Stolen Lands. Uh, Stolen Lands definitely resonated with me as a song about the abuse of people of color, including First Nations individuals by Caucasian Euro-Americans. I love mm. that you include sort of the critical irony of Woody Guthrie's This Land is Your Land in the context of the song. And, uh, of course, these abusive issues are not merely in memory, but still continue to this day. Would you please comment? Yeah, I mean, that was a song. Uh, again, I, I'm trying to honor both parts of my heritage, like, you know, being Black and uh, Indigenous. I'm, I'm trying to um, also comment on the fact that I'm neither one or the other, and that the interesting thing about that is that my, my parents and, and our, our families fell in love and, and created what you have here. I'm mm -hmm. like, I'm basically a, a seed, which I, I comment the song before it. It's sort of one, two, three punch. Mm -hmm. um, and I did want to, uh, you know, address the, the fact that um, Woody Guthrie and his song, even though I know it was meant to be patriotic, um, is not a depiction of the right history uh, that's actually happened here mm -hmm. maybe the history that was taught in schools uh, for sure but it's not exactly what happened mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know sla slaves came to this this place and helped build it and, and the land was taken from the people who were here yep. and i just happened to be part of both of them mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well and, and there's like the fact that in... go ahead well, I was just going to say, I mean, I think that is the, that's the real irony of you, you, you know, you um, referring to Woody Guthrie's song in the context of your song, because, uh, you know, it, it, when it comes to indigenous people, the land was already your land and it was, and, yeah, it, was for sure, but... and, and it was taken. Yeah. I, I, I say, I, I changed the line. And uh, I, I, I say that in the first uh, chorus. That's mm -hmm. the first chorus. And then the second chorus, I say um, the land was built on slavery. Mm -hmm. So I'm I'm trying to to get both sides of the the, the, the picture. And the first verse is uh, about my grandfather who um, was unable to speak Mohawk anymore, and how sad that was. I also talk about the children's unmarked graves and how uh, upsetting that is. In the second um, verse, I talk about a, a good family friend whose son, you know, a black boy was, you know, used to come over for dinner all the time with my family, and he was gunned by gunned down by the Toronto police. Um, so, 
I just wanted to, yeah, talk about those things and, and, and mm -hmm. be honest about them for people so that they can, like I said, like a lot of these songs on this record are conversation starters mm -hmm. and pieces. They're not, this is not very cozy material. You're you're absolutely right. I mean, there's if you're really studying history, there is history that probably should make you angry. There is history that should make you sad, uh, upset. Uh, all these various things that certain uh, elements in our society are trying to uh, uh, keep from us, actually, or at least keep from children. They don't want the truth to come out because they feel like, well, it'll make make uh, make white people feel bad about themselves. And I don't uh, want to make anybody feel bad about no. themselves, but you know. But there is something about owning up to uh what has happened and uh, as a way for uh atoning if you will or coming to terms with that that is part of our history and we want to mm -hmm. avoid it again at all costs mm -hmm. and i i think that's uh I agree. you know well anyway maybe to, to kind of end things on a, a specific song that to me was a very uh, I think kind of upbeat uh, piece was your song. I am a tree. And as I listened to it, <laughs> I, I thought that I, I am a tree could very easily be a children's song. Song yes, for children, like song that. about by children. And, 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 uh, and it has a, a wonderful simplicity to it in that it, uh, basically the song spoke to me as one, as the tree serving as a, a metaphor for our own existence. We're born, we live, we have family, we have family history to support us. We play, we learn, we teach, we reproduce, we have trials and challenges, and we impact others, if in no other way, their memories of us. So mm -hmm. would you you're, talk you're about- absolutely right. Okay. Wow, I, I yeah, nailed you're absolutely one. Right. It was you did. I mean, it was meant to also be a reaffirmation on the, the previous two songs. If you see what I've done purposely on the record, it goes seed, stolen land, I am a tree. It's mm -hmm. like it's 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 germination, it's uh you know, proclamation and declaration. All in all in a row. Okay. So there is yeah. uh, there is uh, some concept behind uh, at least the way you ordered the songs on the album. Well, the whole record's a concept record anyway. Okay, it's almost like a uh, a, a storybook or uh, somebody. So what did one interviewer say? Like a folk opera. <laughs> okay. So, so it's like okay, I'll All take right. it. There you go. Um, but it's meant to, it's meant to be like that. It's meant it's meant to be heard from start to finish. This record, okay. Yeah. Well, it's, 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 it's uh, every, every, everything's very carefully detailed and, <clears throat> and deliberately planned out. Okay, well, that's that's good to know. And and for my listeners who now know that, they will be able to listen to it start to finish and perhaps. Uh, better understand what it is that you're offering in your artistic expression. Uh, I kind of pick songs, uh, just highlighted a few, but are there any other songs from the album that you would like to talk about that I haven't asked you about? 
Um, sure. I, I, I really think that Seeds is a song that has transcended, um, especially in my live performances, knowing that it was written about, um, you know, the discovery here in Canada of unmarked graves. And my cousin sent me a text just simply saying they tried to bury us, but they didn't know we were Seeds. You know, we're too strong to be put down. Um, this this heritage and 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 this, these ideologies and and spirituality is just too strong to be buried. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that song's become really important. And even though it was written in that context, I've found it very interesting how many people will come up to me after a show. Like for example, um, one particular guy said that you know the song made him cry and resonated with him so deeply because his grandparents were Holocaust survivors. Mm-hmm. So it, it it just it's sort of one of those songs that really means a lot to me and, and to other people um, mm-hmm. as as time goes on. I hope that it, it it's something that people really listen to and, and the lyrics are important. Okay, all right. So make sure we we don't forget about the song "Seeds," which is which is uh, certainly there within the context of these other songs and some of that me- the meaning that you're you're referring to. Well, I want to shift gears, uh, kind of recalling okay. on your career. You've had you've had a pretty remarkable career for the past twenty plus years. What would you say have mm. been some of your most memorable musical experiences? Oh, I, I when Jay Bennett was alive, he was a good friend of mine, and uh, he helped me um, learn how to produce records. I mean, he came up and produced my second record jay bennett i don't know if you remember was in a band called wilco for a little while mm-hmm. he was also in um a couple other bands and so hanging out with him was really amazing music week hanging out with colin linden has been uh really amazing Sam hashami who's the guy who's produced a bunch of my records he and i have a, a great musical and production relationship and and it's really interesting to to be in a room with him uh, and myself because we're such different personalities but bring out the best in each other um but to be honest live is where it's at for me um always mm-hmm. has been i've always enjoyed going out and performing uh to an audience and with them in the uh space with you because it just it's it's something that you can't recreate you can't download that one actual feeling you can't you can stream it i guess but it's not like being in a room with somebody Mm-hmm. everybody's aura has a, a different different vibe and a different feeling and and, and it's all electricity it's all sunlight and, and and that we you know illuminate uh when we're around each other and uh singing in harmony and stuff like that so anytime i get to be on a stage that's when i'm where i'm the happiest mm-hmm. well i'd have to agree with you there is nothing like the live music experience not only both for the audience member but for the performer Music making mm-hmm. is a human experience, and it's it's one that I think is best experienced when it's mono on mono, and uh, uh, because you can, uh, you know, as a performer, you certainly are energized uh, uh, by the audience's reaction to uh, your uh, music, and certainly I think the audience is also energized by actually seeing you produce the music. Um, and, uh, so yeah, I agree with you a hundred percent. I think those are the, the kinds of, uh, 
experiences that, well, we learned very well during the pandemic, how much we missed live oh, yeah, music, both sure. as performers and as audience members. Well, when you think about, uh, when we think about your vocal, your personal vocal style and the quality that you, you bring to your voice, uh, who do you feel were your particular models or are you a hybrid of, of a number of different people? I would have to say I'm a hybrid of a number, number of different people. I've done so many different things um, mm -hmm. over my career in the last two decades. I've done that uh, a rock and roll grunge thing. I've done um, R&B funk. I've done pop music. I've done country music. I've done hip hop, folk music. Um, I'm a combination of, of, of all the voices that I've heard before me. Mm -hmm. um, when people describe my um, vocal style, I... I don't really know what to say. They say in my folk music, it's very conversational, which I do agree. So I would, you know, the likes of Leonard Cohen, excuse me, Leonard Cohen mm -hmm. and Jim Crochet come to mind. Even Bill Withers, where the vocal and and, the, and him talking to you is right, right up front. When it comes to belting it out, I, I, I can really go for that too. And, and it's a very different beast in a live scenario. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. People, there's one song on the last record that even sounds like Roy Orbison. So, <laughs> um, I just go with what I, I think that the song deserves. Mm -hmm. Um, and if it's got a lot of lyrics and conversation is where it should go. And if it's just a song to get people going, sometimes you just need to belt it out. Mm -hmm. Sure. Sure. Well then in terms I mean, of, I can't sing like Axl Rose or anything like that. I, no, I, no, I don't well, have that's, down. that's okay. I mean, it's a matter of, you can only be the best you that you are. And, uh, uh, but, uh, you know, I think our musical DNA is is very often shaped by uh, who we listen to and, and who we uh, maybe uh, admired or emulate. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, you talked about Michael Jackson early on, but I don't think you particularly sound like Michael Jackson, <laughs> for example. Uh, but I, I do, uh, I do hear a lot of some of the, uh, other kinds of styles and, and that's true. I think in listening to your back catalog, I mean, uh, your, your other or your earlier bands, uh, in some ways are very different from what you're doing now. And it's, uh, very different. It's, yeah. uh, it's sort of like, uh, you know, all of us uh artistically are we're not two sides of a coin it's like we're many sides of a cube and uh, perhaps uh disagree with me if you choose to but i think that what we're getting with with uh your most current uh output is really what's more you than uh maybe trying to emulate some other style sure i mean the other thing is that when I'm working with a band, I'm a, sometimes I'm actually trying to accommodate them to and how they sound. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that makes any sense to you, no, but, yeah. but yeah, do you get it? Kind of like where I'm like, because I because I'm representing them as well, right? So in a lot of ways, it's like even though I may be the lead singer or something like that, I'm trying to to find a way to to make sure that their voice gets heard in in, in some sort of ways as well. Which, well, I yeah, think it's probably true to put it. that the more you collaborate, the more you have to uh, uh, compromise. In other words, I think so too. Yeah, you know, because you've got to give a little to get a little. Uh, 
And, uh, mm -hmm. and I think when you're talking about within a band format, you're talking about a particular band sound uh, that you're going after. But in your more recent things, it's more of just a Julian sound. I mean, that's, I what, that's that, kind yeah. of the way I interpret it anyway. Yeah. Sure, I, I would say so. Okay, yeah. all right. I like it that way. It's nice. I, 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 I hope I'm not putting people to sleep but uh, you know. well i think That's... that it's 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 your it's you coming across um perhaps uh and i don't mean these in in pejorative uh ways but you're less adulterated because it's just mostly it's all you instead of as you said being part of a band or part of a particular band sound or image mm -hmm. uh, uh so i think that that's uh you know, that's a, a unique and new view of you and your artistry. You mentioned earlier about uh, when you were songwriting. Do you uh, do you keep track of like when you get a snip of an idea? Do you keep a sketchbook of melodic ideas? Oh, yeah. For other sure. things for that sure. you go back to when you write a song? Okay. Always. Yeah. I always yeah. have um, stuff on the go. And a lot of the times I, I have, it's a funny thing, right? Thank goodness for the, um, the iPhone. Yeah. The voice like, memo. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've always, I'm always doing that. Yeah. It's, uh, not surprising, but, uh, you know, how many singer songwriters I've talked to over the last couple of years that will tell me that sometimes they get their best ideas while they're in the car, while they're driving in the car. And uh, of course, oh, no yeah. means to write it down, but they can pull out their iPhone and sing uh, a melody or a lyric or or something into their into their voice memos. And so that's always kind of a good idea. I mean, inspiration, or as I like to say, your muse never spews when when it's convenient. It's always always kind of <laughs> you know that's when you're in the fun, middle yeah. of something else, you know. So that's great. That's no, good. Well, like you know, uh, yeah. You've you've talked about um, your enjoyment of uh, playing live. Can you uh, tell us about live sh any live shows you've got coming up, and the venues where you might typically appear? And are you planning a tour in the near future? Yeah, I've got a couple shows coming up. Um, let me just go to my my calendar, and I'll let you know. Um, sure. I I'm going to be. Uh, I'm performing in London, Ontario with Hallucination on the 18th. I'll be at the NAC on Remembrance Day, which is in Ottawa, the National Arts Centre. Then I and I'm off for a little bit. I'll be in... Oh, sorry about that. No problem. Uh, I, I will... I'll be in, Cam I'll be in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts uh, at Club Passam. I will be at uh, Possum Hollow um wherever that is <laughs> saratoga springs um victor new york as well mm -hmm. and uh yeah I've, then i'm heading over to the uk i'll be in london and, and touring england for a while and then right. germany i'm touring and then the netherlands i'm touring there wonderful wonderful so uh opening mm -hmm. up uh to uh european audiences and letting them hear but i i would uh yeah i would be uh, uh remiss if i did not extend to you an invitation 
to come to the Milwaukee area. I live just outside of I Milwaukee. And Milwaukee mm-hmm. itself has some wonderful venues. Uh, okay. Uh, there's uh, Shank Hall. There's the Turner Ballroom. There's uh, all the, you know, there's numerous other places. There's, uh, Cle- oh, the back room at Collectivo Coffee. Uh, these are, uh, and there's others, but those are the ones that are coming to mind because I've been to them and they're wonderful, medium-sized kind of venues. You know, they might have uh, two to 300, 400 seats, but they're not, not huge theaters okay. or arenas. Uh, but the real showcase is that Milwaukee is the home to a, the largest music festival, outdoor music festival in the world. It's called Summerfest, and it occurs Summerfest. Summerfest. Yes, you can go online and find out Mm -hmm. all about Summerfest. But Summerfest will uh, usually go, uh, it has in the past, it'll run uh, like the last week of June through the first week of July, and they will have uh, nine main stages, numerous other side stages. They book all kinds of artists from extremely well-known, internationally known artists to uh, people who are more regionally uh, known or lesser known artists. I mean, it's just a wonderful kind of uh, uh, venue. And the way it works is you pay, you pay, uh, uh, you know, admission to get in and then you can mm-hmm. walk around and go to all these different stages. And of course they'll have a big program that'll talk about uh, who's playing and when, and, and it's uh, really quite a big deal here in the summertime. Uh, and uh, you know, but if you were to come say to the Milwaukee area, we're also not that far from Madison, Wisconsin, which also has a, a okay. good number I'd like to be of, in that area for sure. of venues. And if for anything else, we're like an hour and a half north of Chicago, you know, so you could even right. get into bigger cities and that sort of thing. But uh, I always I love, uh, I love Chicago. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a it's a great city. I haven't been there for a few days, a few months. No, it's been a few years, actually. <laughs> uh, but uh, but the Midwest of the United States, the upper Midwest, we have a, a lot, uh, a lot to offer to musicians and uh, and music people. And and I think, uh, no, I, I want to really just be in that area and sort of keep coming down and building my fan base if I can, you know? Sure, sure. Well, one of the things that I've, you know, I've always felt good about with my my podcast, I've actually sought out, uh, in addition to artists that have been sent to me by Krista, but I've actually sought out Canadian artists because they aren't sometimes oh, as, as well known here in the States. And uh, I've discovered and had the opportunity to talk to some wonderful uh artists in in canada uh you know and uh so uh but like to invite you guys to, to come south of the border and and share your music here with us so it's uh we'd love that yeah so you know have a look at it and have uh you know give it a shot if you're you feel like you're up for it but but julian uh is there anything else you'd like to add or tell my audience that i have not asked you about today well, no, I just think that it's an interesting thing that we're so close, uh, Canada and, and America, that a Canadian artists would be able to get a little bit more exposure. Uh, and it's happening already. I think it's like 
we're basically in a new age of music where it's like 1955, but with computers. So um, it's exciting. It's it's a new landscape. And I, I if anybody gets a chance, please check out um, my website. I also have a radio show where I try to promote like, you know, independent artists and, and black and indigenous artists. It's called The Jukebox. And, and people can find me at Julian Taylor's Jukebox. And uh, just thank you for supporting the music. It's pretty cool. Well, I uh, I really enjoy uh, uh, doing my podcast in my, it's kind of my, in a small way that I feel like I can help promote uh, artists and promote music and teach people about music. So, well, Julian, I want to thank you for taking time to talk with me today. And I want thank to wish you. you all the best with what I'm sure will be a continued successful musical future. Well, I appreciate it. Hey, listen, it was really great to meet you. Uh, Craig, you're a very bright uh, and thoughtful, insightful man. So thanks for taking the time and uh, really digging into the record. Well, thank you. And you have a great rest of your day. My Discovery Composer of the Week is Alexander von Zemlinski. Born in Vienna in 1871, he died in Larchmont, New York in 1942. While undisputably a conductor of the first rank and an interpreter of integrity, he lacked star quality and was overshadowed by more domineering personalities. His music is distinguished by an almost overpowering emotional intensity. It took several decades before it became known and began to be appreciated. At the age of four, he showed aptitude at the piano, and after completing his regular schooling in 1886, he enrolled at the Vienna Conservatory, studying the piano with Dürer, harmony and counterpoint with Krenn, and Robert Fuchs, and composition from 1890 to 1892 with the latter's brother, J.N. Fuchs. From 1893 onwards, his first chamber compositions were performed at the Wiener Tonkunstlerverin, in whose concerts he also often appeared as a pianist and conductor. Brahms was impressed by his work and recommended him to Simrock. In 1895-1896, Zemlinski conducted an amateur orchestra, the Polyhymna, in which Schoenberg played the cello. In 1900, Mahler gave the premiere of Zemlinski's second opera at the Vienna Hofoper. In 1901, Schoenberg married his sister, Mathilde. From 1903, Zemlinski taught orchestration at the Schwarzwald School, where his pupils included Berg, Horvitz, Jalovitz, Erwin Stein, and Weber. A later private composition pupil was Korngold. In 1904, with Mahler's support, he and Schoenberg founded the Veringung Schaffender Tonkutzler to promote new music in Vienna. But from 1900, due to the early death of his father, he was also obliged to seek regular paid employment. Until 1903, he was Kapellmeister at the Karl Theater, and from 1903 at the Theater 
under Wien, both operetta houses. In 1904, he was appointed chief conductor at the Volksoper, where the repertory extended to Mozart and Wagner, and in 1906 to the Viennese premiere of Salome. In 1907, he joined Mahler at the Hofoper. After the latter's resignation, he was engaged at Mannheim, but the contract was not implemented. In 1908, returning to the Volksoper, he conducted the influential Viennese premiere of Dukas, Ariane et Barbe Bleu, his own Kleidermachen Leute, followed in 1910. The acclaim with which each new work of his had been greeted gradually abated. And in 1911, he accepted the musical directorship of the Neue Deutsches Theater in Prague. Although the theater schedule allowed little time for composition, his finest works date from his Prague period. With the founding of the Czech Republic in 1918, the position of the German minority became precarious, but Zemlinsky proved an able diplomat and succeeded in securing the future of the Deutsche Landestheater, as it was now renamed. In September 1938, he fled with his wife and daughter to New York. Partial reconciliation with Schoenberg and a nationwide NBC broadcast of the Sinfionetta under Mitropoulos could only momentarily alleviate the gloom of his final years. Although the New York Times published an obituary, in Europe his death went virtually unnoticed. Following the example of Brahms and Robert Fuchs, Zemlinsky adopted and refined the technique of developing variation. His textures are predominantly polyphonic. The tradition of Viennese espressivo determines the inflections of his melodic line. In his harmony, which upholds long-standing Austro-German conventions of key symbolism, Zemlinsky seeks innovatory solutions, but eschews the furthest extremes of dissonance. Zemlinsky never entirely crossed the threshold of atonality. And where Berg sought the most logical solution to each structural problem, Zemlinsky delighted in asymmetry in the subtle aberration of logical processes. Craftsmanship of a consistently high level is coupled in his music with a sure instinct for vocal writing and a precise ear for instrumental sonority. The All Music Guide lists three recordings of ballet music, 16 recordings of chamber works, eight recordings of Zemlinsky's choral works, eight recordings of his compositions for keyboard, eight recordings of his operas, four recordings of his symphonies, three recordings of other orchestral works, and 79 recordings of his work for voice with accompaniment. In my show notes is a link to a YouTube video performance of Zemlinsky's Piano Trio in D minor, Opus 3, performed by the NZ Trio. And that wraps episode number 117. 
My show notes, along with links to artist websites, recording label websites, YouTube videos of artist performances, are all posted on my Facebook page, The Musical Universe of Professor Hurst. Next week, I'll be interviewing New York City-based jazz vocalist and songwriter Nicole Zorenis. Nicole has a recent album entitled Wandering Hearts, and also a new recording entitled Sonica, where she collaborates with Tana Alexa and Julia Adami. Other upcoming interviews include trumpeter and trombonist Nick Viennis, who is traveling on tour with Michael Bublé, Karen Ballou, harpist and vocalist with the Celtic folk band The Deer's Cry, and New York City-based trombonist Mariel Bilston and baritone saxophonist Andrew Hadro. So don't touch that dial and stay tuned. If you have questions, comments, or a suggestion of an artist, composer, or musical style for me to consider, you may email me at h-u-r-s-t-c at u-w-m dot e-d-u. So until next time, this is Professor Craig W. Hurst and Carmel the Wonder Dog signing off from the musical universe of Professor Hurst. Have a great day. Thank you.